the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. This is a three-part podcast on the World War II flying and prisoner of war history of Flight Lieutenant Robert Neil Lindsay. Neil flew with Bomber Command and, after being shot down, was a prisoner of war in Germany. The story in the recordings by Neil Lindsay in this particular podcast, and all three of them, were told to Air Vice Marshal Peter Scully, retired on the 5th of December in 1996. In part two of this series, Neil will talk to us about Australian aircrew on RAF stations, 83 Squadron on Lancaster Bombers, 106 Squadron and operations over Europe in Lancaster Bombers, an account of flying with Wing Commander Guy Gibson, VC DSO and Bar, DFC and Bar, who was best known in connection with the famous Dam Busters. Life wasn't without its lighter side. Our wing commander, who operated very well from his desk, directed us at briefing one night that he would not tolerate any more boomerangs. Aircraft that returned to base because of mechanical or other problems. These boomerangs were mainly due to the Lancaster being relatively new to operations and was experiencing seething trouble. He stated he was going to leave the squadron tonight and taking one of the chief engineers of A.V. Rowe, the makers of the Lancaster, with him in case of trouble. He also informed the squadron in the case anybody having to return, they weren't to drop their bombs in the North Sea as the Admiralty were complaining about their mic fields being blown up. The pilot had to fly around until he got rid of his surplus petrol and then land with a full bomb load. However, the wing commander's aircraft developed trouble in the escape nest shortly after takeoff and he immediately ordered his bomb aimer to jettons his bomb, which he did live and succeeded in blasting him the shop fronts facing the sea at Skegness. Air Ministry promptly posted him to London with a DFC, where he remained chairborne for the rest of the war. The Lancaster bomber with its four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines was proving worthy successor to the Manchester heavy bomber, which had two Rolls-Royce Vulture engines with inherent technical troubles with insufficient power and was also subject to overheating. A new operational aircraft always had a few teething troubles and all crews operating them were inexperienced with this type of aircraft. Pilots who had already done one tour, 200 hours of operational flying on twin-engine aircraft and other pilots who were straight from ODU which also had twin-engine aircraft. These pilots had 200 to 250 flying hours experience. It really amounted to inexperienced pilots flying an operationally untested aircraft, so the wing commander's admonishments at this stage were out of order. As I said, an OTU pilot had about 200 to 250 hours experience when he became captain of an aircraft on operations, whilst the observer had only about 180 to 200 hours flying experience. It was a case of being chucked off the deep end the word go. Mac and I were in Wing Commander Gibson's crew. In between being supernumerary crew members to Guy Gibson, Mac was collecting a crew of his own and we did a couple of cross-country exercises. It was apparently the practice of the Wing Commander to blood new crew members by taking them on their first operations with the squadron. 
Our first operation with Guy Gibson on the night of the 15th of October was to Cologne. The crew that night was Wing Commander Gibson, Flight Sergeant A.L. McDonald, Flight Engineer, P.R. Ruskell, Navigator, Flight Sergeant Arian Lindsay, Mayor Bomber, Sergeant Hartley, Wireless Operator, Flight Lieutenant W.B. Oliver, Mid-Upper Gunner, and P.O. J.F. Wickens, Rear Gunner. Flight Lieutenant W.B. Oliver was the squadron gunnery leader. Took off at 19.05 and were back again just before midnight at 23.45 hours. Alistair MacDonald, Mac, my pilot, and I flew as members with Guy Gibson on this operation. Mac was second pilot and flight engineer, and I was his bomb. Wind commander's skill and experience was quite apparent, especially over enemy territory. We experienced intercom problems, but continued on and bombed the target area. Our bomb load was one 4,000-pound bomb, a cookie, and 12 SBC small bomb containers which held four-pound incendiaries. Whilst there was cloud over the target at 6,000 feet, visibility was good. We identified bridges over the river and dropped our bombs from 10,000 feet, which appeared to explode on the east side of the river. That was very heavy and the aircraft was hit. Our intelligence report in the uh, squadron's operational logbook ripped out over the target at 6,000 feet. Visibility was good, identified bridges over the river, dropped bombs from 10,000 feet. They were believed to have burst on the east side of the river. Black was heavy and the aircraft was hit. The Bomber Command War Diary report of the 15th of 16th of October 1942 stated that 289 aircraft went on this operation, 109 Wellingtons, 78 Halifaxes and 62 Lancasters. After another low-level cross-country, we were briefed for a daylight operation to bomb the Snyder Armament Factory and the Mount Shannon Powerhouse. Cross-country training flights up to the La Crusoe Raid were quite hair-raising, flying low-level information over England, Ireland and Wales. It was haymaking time in England, and once in Northumberland, a horse in a hay rake was frightened by the low-flying aircraft and bolted. The hay rake buckled the driver trying to pull up his bolting horse. On occasion, we were attacked by our own fighters in order to give air gunners simulated battle experience. Some of the fighter pilots in their enthusiasm flew into the ground. Coming back from Ireland, we had to make a simulated low-level attack on a bombing range off Hollyhead, North Wales. The attack was low-level in formation, and leaving the bombing range, we headed for Great Forms Head and Landudno, a town at the base of the Isthmus. The Winco said, let's rattle the rooftops, and we swept at rooftop level over the town and dropped onto the mudflats on the other side and flew into a flock of seagulls, one which we hit and it went through the perspex in front of the pilot. He was covered in pop seagull, and with the slipstream coming into his face, he casually sat to one side, pulled the aircraft up, and then slipped in George, the automatic pilot. Much to my amazement, he had previously warned the squadron not to engage in George below 2,000 feet, and here we were flying at less than 500. He flew the aircraft back to base through the Derbyshire hills using his trimming taps, finally landing safely at Syrus. Because of intercom trouble in our operation to Cologne, Mac, who flew a second pilot, 
an engineer on this operation. And I, at one moment, we decided to take along spare helmets. Winko was quite amused at this precaution. On the day of the operation to the Crusoe, he decided to take the squadron off in formation. I thought he would choose the runway, but no, he chose the turf. It must have been a grand sight on, from the ground watching a squadron of four-engine bombers taking off in formations of three. This daylight raid to France was a great show. At one stage I could see 79 Lancasters in front of me in formation. Crossing the French coast we came to a rural area where the peasants were ploughing the fields with their oxen. The absence of horses as a means of power was very noticeable. However, the noise of the machines, which were hedge-hopping, must have been terrific, and the oxen were bolting in all directions. One would see a team of oxen slowly plodding down a field, drawing a plough, making nice straight furrows, and then they would hear the noise of the aircraft, and away they would go across the field, drawing the plough behind them, making a mess of the nice straight furrows. The peasants would go after them. It was like a comedy but I guess the peasants thought different. Lots of people waved to us. Coming back home in the dark, they flashed lights and Mac flashed back the V sign with the oldest lamp. The impression I got was that farms were neglected due to a shortage of labour. There, there were a lot of people working in the fields until quite late. Those fields that were under cultivation were well tended. The chateau were beautiful, but one thing I noticed was that the majority had their windows boarded up, but the ones that were in use were a picture. Some could have come out of Walt Disney's cartoons. Give you an idea how low we were. One of the chaps saw a couple of Nazis walking down a road from what looked like a concentration camp, and he could see the swastikas on their armbands. He gave them a squirt with his front guns and they dived into a ditch. The people in this concentration went wild and waved when they saw the Lancaster sweep overhead. We passed Chinon, a beautiful old world city surrounded by walls with its castle and churches or monasteries. The castle, I believe, was the one that held Joan of Arc as a prisoner. Some of the towns were very picturesque. They all had their churches with spires. Gothic architecture at its best and surrounded with various buildings and then the fields with their plots without fences. And on those plots, herds of cattle or flocks of geese attended by a child would graze. Our aircraft was one of 16 tail to low-level attack the Monchanan power station. Initially, we lined up to attack an engine roundhouse that was on fire. At the last moment, I realised the mistake and called dummy run. And after the wing commander cast aspersions at my Australian parenthood, saying that he didn't do dummy runs, and after sighting the power station, he did a steep climbing turn and we successfully straddled the target with our bomb. I also had the perspective shot out in front of me. After this bombing run, we did two low-level strafing runs over the power station, and there was quite a firework display as the incendiary bullets hold the transformers. I managed to find, fire about a thousand rounds from the front turret during these strafing. We saw one aircraft crash in the target area. On returning to England, we were diverted due to bad weather over our base to an American air base at Oakington. Later reports stated our attack on the power station had been successful and the main station had been destroyed and would take two years to repair. Our wing commander was awarded the DSO after this operation, 
pilot officer A.S. Grant, RAF, who was navigator of Wing Commander Slee, who led this raid, did a first-class job of navigation, arriving two minutes outside the briefed ETA and also received the DSR. Incidentally, in the enthusiasm of our attack on the target at Mont we flew too low and got blasted by our own bomb. An extract from the squadron's operational record book of the 17th of October 1942 read, the aircraft number was four double one eight Lancaster and the crew was Wing Commander G. B. P. Gibson, Sergeant A. L. MacDonald, P. O. F. Ruskell, Sergeant R. N. Lindsay, P. O. R. E. G. Hutchinson, wireless operator, Flight Lieutenant W. B. Oliver and P. O. J. F. Wigan. The details of the sortie or flight in the operational logbook read, no cloud, visibility good, flew out in formation, but broke away near the Crusoe to make a special attack, the objective being Monchanan Powerhouse, and bombed from 500 feet and scored direct hits. After machine gunning the transformer plants, there was very little opposition and it was classified as a successful raid. The Bomber Command War Diaries reads, this famous raid was carried out against the large factory at Le Crusoe, situated more than 300 miles inside France. The factory was regarded as the French equivalent of Krupp's and produced heavy guns, railway engines, and it was believed tanks and armoured cars. A large workers' housing estate was situated at one end of the factory. Bomber Command had been given this as the highest priority target in France for a night attack but only in favourable conditions. Harris decided to attack by day at low level despite the fate of the force sent to Augsburg nearly six months earlier when seven out of the 12 Lancasters dispatched were shot down. The attack was given to Air Vice Marshal Corian's five group and its nine Lancaster squadrons carried out a a series of low-level practice flights over in. After favourable weather report, 94 Lancasters set out in the afternoon of the 17th of October. The force was led by Wing Commander L.C. Slee of 49 Squadron. 88 aircraft were to bomb the Snyder factory, and the other six were to attack a nearby transformer station which supplied the factory with electricity. The Lancasters flew in loose formation over the sea around Brittany and crossed the coast of France between La Rochelle and Saint-Nazaire without any fighter escort. For 300 miles the Lancasters flew at treetop level over France. No German, no German fighters attacked the bombers during this flight. The greatest danger was from birds. Four aircraft were damaged and two men injured by bird strikes. After a fine piece of work, Wing Commander Slee, Pilot Officer A.S. Grant, the force reached its last turning point near Nevis and gained height for bombing. There was practically no flak at the target. The bombing took place in clear conditions at heights between 2,500 and 7,500 feet. Nearly 140 tonnes of bombs were dropped. The Lancaster returned safely home as darkness closed in. The only casualty was one aircraft, a 61 squadron, which bombed the nearby transformer station at such a low level that it crashed into a building. The five groups claimed a successful attack on the Snyder factory, but photographs later showed that much of the bombing had fallen short and had struck the workers' housing estate near the factory.
Some bombs had fallen into the factory area, but damage was not extensive. It has not been possible to obtain a report from France on the casualties suffered by the local people in this raid. Mac and I did a night flying test with Flight Lieutenant Wammon before our next operational flight to Genoa. The squadron record book reads for this raid on Genoa on the night of the 22nd, 23rd of October 1942. The type of aircraft was the Lancaster 4118 which we flew to the Crusoe in and we had the same crew. Our time up was 17.30 hours and our time down was 0300 hours the following morning. The details of the sortie of flight in the record book read bright moonlight, some smoke, haze, target located visually, bomb from 10,000 feet. Target was in bombsight and the bombs were seen to burst in a built up area about a half a mile north of the aiming point. Photographs showed area one and a half miles distance. Opposition slide, a successful trip. Our bomb load was two 1,000 pound bombs and seven small bomb containers carrying four pounds incendiaries. My uh, personal comment on the raid was it was a bright moonlight night and our target and docks were located visually and bomb crew was awarded a aiming point photograph for this night's operation. The Bomber Command War Diaries report reads 112 Lancasters of five group and the Pathfinders were dispatched to recommence the campaign against Italy to coincide with the 8th Army's offensive at Alamein. It was a perfectly clear moonlight night and the Pathfinder marking was described as prompt and accurate. The bombing by this comparatively small force of aircraft carrying only 180 tons of bombs could hardly have been carried out under more ideal conditions. No Lancasters were lost. Details from Genoa are not precise, but very heavy damage was caused in the city centre and the eastern districts. Many old buildings, including the Palazzo Ducali, and several museums and churches were destroyed. Provisional estimates of casualties were 39 dead and 200 injured, but the actual figures may have been higher. Local reports mention the severe effect on the morale of the people of Genoa. I managed to get rooms for Joan and I at 25 shillings a week in a vicarage in Neaton, a village overlooking the Trent at the end of the main runway at Syreston. It only takes me about 20 minutes to ride to the aerodrome each day and I had an arrangement with Dave Shannon to sign my sleeping out pass if ops were scrubbed at the last minute. After three operations with Wing Commander Gibson, Mac, my pilot, started organising his own crew and we did several training exercises in order to give the new crew members experience. On the 6th to the 11th, 1942, we were briefed to bomb Genoa. Unfortunately, there was a demoralising influence by the mid-upper gunner and the flight engineer, both without much operational experience. Because of hydraulic problems, the mid-upper turret wasn't working and we had to return to base. Still experienced morale problem, mid-upper gunner was the problem. Another task the air crew had to do was dropping leaflets over enemy territory. The leaflets in bundles would be handed into the aircraft, some near the flare chute and others forward in the bomb aimers compartment. At a predestined 
the Stein position, they would be dropped over enemy territory. The wireless operator would drop them through the parachute, whilst the bomb aimer would place leaflets in the compartment in the bomb bay. The bomb doors were opened and the leaflets dropped from the aircraft. The uh, operational record book of that night reads that we flew in Lancaster 5697. The pilot was Mac and the navigator myself and uh, our air bomber was Sergeant Noble. Our time up was 20 down, was 2.45 the next morning. And the details of the sortie of the flight was mission abandoned due to hydraulic trouble. On the 28th of November 1942, we were briefed to fly to Turin. Just prior to this operation, the wing commander informed Mac and I that he had recommended us for commission. My recurring bouts of air sickness, and he asked me if I was air sick while bombing. And, and on getting a negative reply, he said I was a bomb aimer from now on. On this flight, we carried 13 SPC of incendiaries, and we also obtained a good photo. We took off at about uh, 20 to 7 on the 28th and the 12th, and we arrived back at base at 04.10 hours the following morning. The Bomber Command War Diary report is that 228 aircraft 17 Lancasters, 47 Stirlings, 45 Halifaxes, 19 Wellington took part. Two Stirlings and one Wellington were lost. Part of the force bombed before the pathfinders were ready, but the remainder carried out very accurate bombing, some of it around the Royal Arsenal. Wing Commander G.P. Gibson and Flight Lieutenant W.N. Wamman of 106 Squadron dropped the first 8,000 pound bombs on Italy. Turin recorded 67 people killed and 83 injured. During the raid on Turin, a sterling of 149 squadron came down to 2,000 feet in order to establish the exact position of its target. The Australian captain of the crew was Flight Left Sergeant R.H. Middleton and he made three runs across the city and his aircraft was hit by light anti-aircraft fire. A shell exploded in the cockpit. The two pilots and wireless operator were seriously injured. Flight Sergeant Middleton became unconscious temporarily, but the co-pilot, Flight Sergeant L.A. Hyde, managed to keep control and bombs were released. The Stirling was hit again over Turin and again over France on the return flight. The coast of England was reached, but the captain decided there was little chance of landing safely, mainly because of shortage of petrol, but also because of damaged state of the aircraft and the injuries of the two pilots. Flight Sergeant Middleton, being badly wounded in the head, was very weak and could hardly see or speak. He turned parallel to the coast and ordered the crew to bail out. Five men did so and survived, but Middleton and two other men were still in the plane when it crashed into the sea. Flight Sergeant Middleton was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross. He was the second Australian bomber commander to win the VC. The co-pilot was awarded the DFM and the four other members of the crew were decorated. Middleton's body was washed up on the Kent coast and was buried at Milton Hall near his home airfield, Lackenheath. We were briefed on the 6th, uh, 6th of December to go to Mannheim. Time up that night was 17.20 hours and we returned back to base at 23.40. 
the details of the sorting of the flight was 1010 clouds with tops at 4,000 feet, target not identified, and bomb from 10,000 feet on Pathfinder flares and ETA. No results seen, unsatisfactory trip. Our bomb load was 14 small bomb containers containing four pound incendiaries. My personal comments on the trip were that it was an unsatisfactory trip. Crew problems exacerbated by navigator on returning to England. While shallow cumulus cloud with moon shining on them were mistaken for the cliffs of Dover. Eventually pinpointed our problem at Exeter, which had some flashing identification letter, as our, the same identification letter as our squadrons. Landed at Exeter in cloudy conditions. They kept firing a World War I mortar for identification purposes. King George VI visited the base on the following day and crew members were presented to him. The Bomber Command war diaries of that night reads that 272 aircraft consisting of 101 Lancaster, 65 Halifaxes, 57 Wellingtons, 49 Stirlings. 10 aircraft were lost, 5 Wellingtons, 3 Halifaxes and 1 Lancaster and 1 Stirling, which were 3.1 percent of the force. Four more crashed in England. The targeted area was found to be completely cloud covered. Most of the pathfinders withheld their flares and many of the 220 crews who bombed did so on dead reckoning positions. Mannheim reports that only 500 or so incendiary bombs and some leaflets. We were again briefed on the 8th of December to fly to Turin. However, our time up was 17.55 and our time down was 20.50. The mission was abandoned due to the illness of the rear gunner. My personal comment is, mission abandoned to illness, question mark, of the rear gunner. The flight was disastrous due to the illness. One crew member, the flight engineer, com became completely demoralized and collapsed on the rest couch. A burst hydraulic pipe in the cabin with fluid swilling on the floor didn't help as I took over the duties of the flight engineer, which were mainly to read instruments and to help in landing. The ill member of the crew disappeared from the station and was subsequently arrested at his home for desertion. The flight engineer quietly disappeared from the squadron. The Bomber Command War Diaries report of that night was that the pathfinders illuminated the target well and bombing was very accurate. Residential industrial areas were both extensively damaged. Fires from this raid were still burning the following night. The unfortunate ha happenings in the crew of this particular night turned out to be a blessing in disguise as we got rid of some of the, un the unsatisfactory members of our crew. On the 9th of December, we were again briefed to go to Turin and we identified the target visually and the build-up area inside and we bombed from 7,500 feet and the bombs were seen to burst amongst large buildings. And briefing on this particular night, the station commander, Group Captain Gus Walker, drew our wing commander's attention to the operation board, showing all flight sergeants and sergeants as pilots and captains of the all squadron aircraft. The wing commander replied, there were no commission captains available, and if he had his way, all the above captains would have commissions. 
As it was, he had recommended most of them for commissions, but by the time the commissions came through, the pilots were either missing or had finished their tour of operation. Much better feeling came into the crew after getting rid of the unstable members. The night following the bub operation, we were set on a night cross-country exercise, giving searchlight and anti-aircraft defences practice. Joan and I went back to Exton for Christmas, where most of the family had gathered. Only one member was absent, as he is serving in North Africa. Joan's brother, Jim, a captain in the artillery, managed to get a 14-pound goose for 45 shillings on the black market. Experienced some Christmas carol racketeering by the village children. Whilst one lot sings the carol, another lot sneaks up and rings the bell and collects the money. After the carols are sung, the singers come to collect their money. In order to smooth things, Money is paid to the rightful carolers, and future carolers have their names taken, so there won't be a double donation for the one lot of carols. On the night of the 8th and 9th of January, we were briefed to go to Dewersburg, and our time up was 17.05, and we came down again at 19.45, as our starboard engine failed, and the mission had to be abandoned. At takeoff for this operation, when 30 aircraft were taxiing around the perimeter track, an aircraft on, one, on the far side of the aerodrome dropped a few incendiaries out of its open bomb bay. Gus Walker, DSO DFC, our station commander, thinking that the aircraft had a cookie on board, sped his car across the aerodrome to warn the crew to get out. Running from his car and waving his arms, he got within 20 yards of the aircraft when the cookie went off. The explosion went straight into the air and the great Lancaster disappeared. The blast blew the group captain a considerable distance and his right arm was severed just below the elbow. Before being taken to a hospital, he asked for someone to look for his right arm as he had a new glove on his right hand and asked the AOC if he would take on a one-armed station commander in two months' time. Such was the caliber of the commander of of Bomber Command. On the night of the 9th and 10th of January 1943, we were again briefed for Essendon. Our time up was 16.45 and we were down again by 18.30 due to a defect in the outer engine. The aircraft was unable to main height so the mission was abandoned and we returned to base with a full bomb load of one 4,000 pounder and 14 small bomb containers. On the night of the 13th of January 1943 we were again briefed to go to Essen. Our time up was 3.20 in the morning and would touch down again at 8.35. There was 10 tenths cloud at 15,000 feet, aiming point release flares seen and bombs were dropped from 19,300 feet at 06.18 hours. No results were seen. Troop was successful from a personal point of view. Flak was heavy. From a personal point of view, there was 10 tenths cloud up to 16,000 feet. Aiming point was at flares released by mosquitoes who bombed at 19,300 feet. At this height, there were cumulus nimbus clouds hovering around us, which gave the operation an eerie aspect with the accompanying heavy flak. Sky markers on this occasion were called Longanui's. The Avo mosquitoes were again in trouble. Two aircraft had to return without marking the sky markers. Of the third aircraft, failed to ignite above the cloud. 
German aircraft had also appeared to have dropped decoy flares to distract the Lancasters. Despite all this, Essen reports a sharp raid with 52 buildings destroyed and 67 seriously damaged. 20 of the buildings being destroyed were wooden hutments belonging to workers. 63 people were killed, including 11 French prisoners of war, six other foreigners, and 113 people were injured. The raid concluded the recent series of over mosquito trials. On the 16th of January, we were briefed to go to Berlin. By this time, we'd had a pretty settled crew. Sergeant MacDonald was captain and pilot, and we had Sergeant K.R.J. Young as flight engineer, and Sergeant R.N. Lindsay was bomb aimer, and Sergeant G. Leonard wireless operator, and Sergeant E.B. Clampett from Canada was the mid-upper gunner, and Sergeant R.G. Owen was the rear gunner. The time-up was 16.05 on the 16th, and our time down was quarter past one in the morning of the 17th. There was cloud nearly all the way to the target. Whilst crossing the Baltic Sea, we could see a twin-engined aircraft about 2,000 feet below us and assumed it was an enemy fighter. When we turned south on our final course to Berlin, we lost the aircraft. There was quite a lot of searchlight and bombing over a wide area as there was a lot of crowd over the target and we bombed an estimated position. The journey back was uneventful until hydraulic failure which affected our brakes and we were diverted to Wittering which had a 5,000 yard runway. On landing we seemed to roll forever before stopping. Richard Dimbleby, a BBC commentator, accompanied Wing Commander Guy Gibson on, this, on his 67th trip and spent most of the time sick on the rest couch, but this did not affect his broadcast of what he saw and experienced over the target. Bomber Command War Diaries report that 201 aircraft were on this attack to Berlin. Sterlings were withdrawn from the original plans so that the higher-flying Lancasters and Halifaxes could participate. Most of the force were provided by five groups. The raid was a disappointment. Berlin was well beyond the range of G and Oboe, and the H-25 radar was not yet ready. Thick cloud which was encountered on the way to the target hindered navigation and Berlin was found to be covered with a haze. Bombing was scattered, mostly in the southern areas, with the greatest concentration in the Tempelhof district. The report from Berlin contained some interesting items among the usual detail of buildings destroyed, etc. The German air raid warning system failed to report the approach of a large bomber force, only of a single aircraft. The Lancasters and Halifaxes thus arrived over Berlin in the evening when a lot of people were away from their homes. The first bomber coincided with the sounding of the sirens and there were many signs of panic until the police could control the crowds attempting to find shelter. Gables, the daughter of Berlin, is reported as having been most angry and ordered an overall test of the procedure. Because of failure, an unusually high number of people were killed considering the weakness of the bombing. 198, but this figure includes 53 prisoners of war, 52 Frenchmen and one Englishman, six foreign workers. Another event was that 
about half the personnel of the Berlin flak units were away from the city, taking part in a course. This resulted in a much lighter barrage than normal. Next day, the whole of Berlin was talking of a miracle which had occurred at the Deutschland Hall, the largest covered hall in Europe, with 10,000 seats. The raid started in the middle of the evening show of the yearly circus in a hall, a major event in Berlin social life. The air raid police and the fire brigade had managed to supervise the evacuation of every person and all the circus animals to open ground in parks around the hall. 21 people were slightly injured in the crush as the crowds left the building. Just after the last person left, a large number of incendiary bombs fell into the hall and it was completely burned out, becoming the largest ruin in Berlin so far in the war. None of the 10,000 people in the open near the hall were hurt. The casualties were also light. Only one Lancaster from Fire Group was lost. The bomber comment report mentions the lightness of Berlin flak defences and assumed that the greater altitude of the bomber force surprised the German gutters. Details of our report in the squadron's operational record book says some crowd over target, no mark of bombs seen and bombs were dropped on estimated position of Berlin coinciding with flak concentration. Results were not seen. Our bomb load was 14 small bomb containers containing four pound incendiaries. On the 18th of January 1943, Mac and I were interviewed at Five Group headquarters in Grantham by the AOC's representative, Air Commodore, for our commissions. Hopefully we will receive them in a few months' time. On the 23rd of January, we were briefed to go to Dusseldorf, and our crew was now really settled. It consisted of Mac as captain, and then Young as flight engineer, and a sergeant, NSF official as navigator. I was Bob Hamer, and Sergeant Leonard was the wireless operator, and Ted Clampett was the mid-upper gunner, and Ron Owen was the rear gunner. Time up on this operation was 16.50, and our time down was 22.15. There was cloud all the way to the target, with tops up to 10,000 feet and we bombed marker bombs from 20,000 through accurate opposition. On returning to England, we were diverted to Tangmere as our aerodrome was fog-bound, and we also had hydraulic trouble. Again on landing, we kept on rolling, and on a newly extended runway, we ran into a Lorenz beam approach hut, damaging the port in an engine. In the mess after the briefing, the typhoon pilots who were stationed at Tangmere thanked us for flattening the obstruction at the end of the runway. On returning to base the next day, we were told not to worry about our aircraft as a typhoon had pranked it on landing. The details of, in the squadron operational record book read 10 tens clouds with tops of 20,000 feet, bomb estimated position of target, which appeared accurate from pathfinder flares. Results of bombing not observed. On the 27th of January, we were again briefed for Dusseldorf. We now flew with our regular crew. Target indicating flares dropped by over mosquitoes were aimed at 18,000 feet. Flat was heavy and accurate. This was a good trip as everything went according to briefing. The crew was now more settled with a good navigator and mutual understanding from all members. Teddy Clampett, 
the Royal Canadian Air Force rear gunner had trouble with his oxygen mask and when he passes out one of the crew members has to pull him out of the rear turret using portable oxygen bottles and then drag him to the rest couch where he is revived. Fortunately Ted is a small light fellow. The temperature drops below minus 32 degrees centigrade 10,000 feet on some nights. After dropping the bombs I take the heating jacket off the camera and put it on my head and use my electrically heated gloves as heaters around my oxygen mask. This prevents the oxygen mask from becoming completely blocked up with ice. Details from the operational logbook regarding our sortie were 10 tenths clouds, tops to 15,000 feet, red warning flares seen, and bombs were dropped as indicated from 18,000 feet at 20.04. Half hours, results not noted, took successful cloud picture, black heavy and accurate. Our bomb load was one four thousand pound and 12 SBCs of four pounded centuries. The Bomber Command War Diaries comment on this flight was that this was the first occasion when over mosquitoes carried out ground marking for the pathway. Ground markers were now standard target indicators set to burst and cascade before the ground. They were known as Parramatta. They were far more accurate than the sky marker parachute flares previously used by mosquitoes when marking targets. Pathfinder Lancasters backed up the over aim markers. There was a thin sheet of cloud over the target and without OVO and the new target indicators this raid would almost certainly have been another typical rural area fire Bombing was well concentrated on the southern part of Dusseldorf. The local report missed damage at a wide variety of property. Ten industrial firms. Bombing was well concentrated on the southern part of Dusseldorf. The local report missed damage at a wide variety of property. Ten industrial firms destroyed or seriously damaged, 21 lightly damaged, nine public buildings were immediately destroyed or seriously damaged, and 2,400 lightly damaged. The Opera House was destroyed, six, six people were killed and 224 injured. 23 of the dead and 169 of the injured were members of the Wehrmacht. Later, at two late left, a German intelligence officer informed me that there were 700 heavy AAC guns around Essen and 7,000 in the Ruhr. The Bomber Command War Diary report of that night's bombing stated that 457 aircraft took part and 5% of the bomber force was lost. This was another very successful overmarked raid. The centre of the bombing area was right across the giant Krupp's factory, just west of the city centre with later bombing drifting back to the northwestern suburbs. Photographic interpretation assessed that Krupps received 30% more damage on this night than on the earlier successful raid on the 5th or 6th of March. Nearly 500 houses were also destroyed in the raid. German records say that one third of the bombers dropped on this night did not hit Essen and that 39 people were killed in another town called Bottrop, just north of Essen, being the worst hit but these towns were all close to Essen and there was often no clear division between overlapping build-up areas. As a postscript to the oral history of the operation on the Montchannon power station in France, Flight Lieutenant Hopwood was also 
of 106 Squadron. And he, with Wing Commander Gibson, were two of the squadron's pilots who were detailed to attack the power station at Monchanan. Both planes flew in very low and dropped their bombs below safety height. His plane received a moderate amount of damage as he dropped a 4,000 pounder from below the minimum safety height. Further postscript referring to the, a personal comment on the Milan operation on the 14th or 15th of February 1943. The night after the Milan operation, Joan and I were visiting her sister at Swansea when the Luftwaffe bombed the port. Later, next day, we visited at a local pub run by Tommy Farr, the Welsh heavyweight boxing champion, and learned that an aircraft from Fairwood Comet patrolled the Bristol Channel to the southeast corner of Ireland caught up with the German bomber stream in the Bristol Channel. An enemy aircraft appeared on his radar screen and he shot it down. Continuing back to base, he detected another enemy aircraft and shot it down. And his third detection occurred near his base and the enemy aircraft was shot down over Fairwood Common. This and many other interesting stories relating to this raid were discussed over pints of beer Whilst this was the last flight on operations with 106 Squadron, was in ZNG for George. By a rare coincidence, I was flown back from Germany after being a POW in a 106 Squadron aircraft bearing the same lettering, ZNG for George, as the aircraft had when I was shot down. Conclusion to taping the oral history of my time with 106 Squadron, I would like to dedicate the following comments to my crew. Flight Sergeant A.L. MacDonald, RAAF, Captain and Pilot. Sergeant K.R.J. Young, RAF, Flight Engineer. Sergeant H.S.F. Fischel, RAF Navigator. Sergeant B.J. Eckert, RAF Wireless Operator. Sergeant R.C.C. Owen, RAF Mid-Upper Gunner. Sergeant E.B. Clampett, RCAF Rear Gunner who lost their lives on operations on the night of the 12th of March 1943 because they epitomised the thoughts of the following script. Air crew were often thrown back on its own resources. The curious and military style of RAF discipline, so often misunderstood and criticised, driving outsiders to despair and sometimes our own senior officers to fury, now came into its own domain drawing us together in resolve. Each bomber crew appeared to forge its own discipline, the very core of the fighting unit, stronger than flight or squadron, greater than group or command, transcending other loyalties to enable us to meet any challenge. At the very centre, the skipper, for good or ill, whatever his strengths or weaknesses, the crew turned to him for leadership and drew upon him for strength and courage. From this it gave strength, individual reservoirs of courage, almost as if each crew member bequeathed some part of his own reserves, making the whole greater than the sum of the parts. In part three of this series of podcasts, Neil will talk to us about his time as a prisoner of war in Germany, his association with the Great Escape, his forced march through Germany in bitter weather, before his liberation and finally his return home. Globally, 
the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.